In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. How many of you know the Lord's Prayer? Taught by Jesus to the very first disciples, as we find it recorded in St. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Certainly one of the most well-known prayers ever known to the world. And certainly one of the most frequently prayed prayers in the world, even today. Known as the Our Father by many people because of its two words from its opening line. Our Father, who art in heaven. This prayer continues to bring comfort and connection to God to millions of people. But did you know that the title, the name of the prayer, is not in Holy Scripture and may not be entirely appropriate. Now it's true that it is the Lord's Prayer in the sense that it was taught by the Lord Jesus to the very first disciples. But Jesus gave it to the disciples to pray. In that sense it might better be called the Disciples' Prayer. And in our own St. John's Gospel today, from chapter 17, we find what many people have said over the centuries might better be called the Lord's Prayer. In John 17, we find Jesus praying. And Jesus' prayer has both comforts and challenges. So chapter 17 of St. John's Gospel and the big storyline are the final moments before the bloody storm. Sort of like the quiet moments in many movies, you know, deep in the night before the battle comes at dawn. In John 18, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas and arrested. In John 19, Jesus will be executed. And so in John 17, our lesson for today, the Lord is preparing the first disciples for what's going to happen next. Because Jesus knows what's going to happen. They do not. And Jesus prays in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. And then Jesus continues to pray all throughout the lesson we heard from John. But hear it again from verse 9. And listen carefully. This is a challenging passage to listen to and to read. But, but listen carefully to what Jesus prays. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. Verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. Are you noticing a theme here, a repetition? One more, verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So the comfort of this prayer for the first disciples is that they knew they were God's children. And the comfort of this prayer for the very first disciples was that they would know protection, Christ's protection, from the evil one. And those comforts can be yours. The comfort of knowing that you are God's child, 
the comfort of knowing Christ's protection, you can claim those by faith. But, but, the challenging parts of this prayer, the alarming, disturbing, maybe disrupting parts of this prayer are the following. Did you catch this? Not belonging to the world and being sent into the world. What are those verses about? I mean, isn't Christianity just supposed to be about our comfort and make us feel good about things? Do those verses bring you comfort? Listen to them again. Do these bring you comfort? Not belonging to the world and being sent into the world. There's an old saying in Christian circles, and it's been said over and over again, probably to the point of making it a cliche. But this saying comes directly from Jesus' prayer right here in John 17. Maybe you've heard this saying before. It's this. Be in the world, but not of the world. Be in the world, but not of the world. You've heard that before? Did you know that the phrase, the world, is something of a technical phrase in the Gospel of St. John and in Christian theology and Christian belief? Eugene Peterson, a great pastor and author, he wrote the Bible translation called The Message, sheds light on what the Bible means when it says the world. Here's how Peterson translates those verses from John 17. When it says the world, he translates it as God-rejecting world. And godless world. And he translates Jesus' words about the disciples in this way. They are no more defined by the world than I am defined by the world. Keep your thinking caps on. Dr. David Nostrum, who's a scripture scholar, shed some biblical light. He says this is the biblical definition of that technical phrase, the world. Here's how this scholar talks about it. The forces and elements opposed to God. Or more precisely, the whole complex of human institutions, values, and traditions that knowingly or unwittingly are arrayed against God. Think about that a little more as you hear it again. The biblical definition of the world. The forces and elements opposed to God. Or more precisely, the whole complex of human institutions, values, and traditions that knowingly or unwittingly are arrayed against God. A distinctive marker of Christian identity from the beginning of the Jesus movement in the first century was a commitment by individual Christians and Christian communities to not be defined by the ways of the world. However popular however powerful or however commonplace. But instead, the commitment from the beginning was to be defined principally by the kingdom of God. Things like love, things like the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, to be defined by those values of the kingdom, not the values that are popular in the world. This has always made Christians, when they were seriously following Christ, that is striving to be disciples, a little different than the people around them. Not better, certainly not perfect, and definitely not without plenty of faults and failures, just like everybody else. But it's made them different 
set apart, marching to the beat of a different drummer, the drummer being Jesus Christ. Now, this commitment to opposing and not living according to the ways of the world would be much easier for you and I today if we could just write off the world. You know, just sort of do our own little Christian thing, hang out in our own little holy huddles, and ignore everything else that's happening. And sadly, Christians sometimes fall into that trap. Prediction, prediction, prediction. In the coming years, as society becomes more and more secular, the holy huddle option will be an increasingly attractive temptation for believers. But Jesus has something else in mind for us. Jesus has something else in mind for us than that. No holy huddles for Jesus. Here's how Jesus continues to pray in verse 17, as he prays for the disciples then and for us, the disciples today. I have sent them into the world. So, does God reject the world and say, forget about all that stuff that's happening there? No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. And way back in the beginning of the Bible, the very start of it all, when God creates everything and looks at the heavens and the earth and he rests back from his work, how does he say it? He says all that has been what? Is very good. Genesis 1.31. So God does not give up even on the worst of his creation that has rejected him. That's another way of defining the world, by the way. Creation that has rejected God. God does not give up in even the worst of his creation that has rejected him, including people who embrace the world. In fact, you and I are sent by God even into the worst of the world on a mission to love. And that's why at the end of every week of a lot of our services here at St. John's, you will hear words to this effect. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. The way it's all supposed to work comes down to this. Having been fed every week at God's family table, you are then to sent out into the world to feed with food those who are hungry, to feed with fellowship those who are lonely, to feed with justice those who have been mistreated, and to feed with faith those who are spiritually starving. Are you in the world, but not of the world? What is distinctively Christian about your life? What is distinctively Christian about my life? Are you more defined by the ways of the world? Because they're popular, they're powerful, they're commonplace? Are you more defined by the values of the kingdom of God? May you and I continue to be an answer to Jesus' prayer here in John 17. You say, well, how can I do that? How do we do that? Well, by responding with joy to the mission that God has given you, the mission that God has given me, sending us out in even to the worst of the world on a mission of love, to love in the way of Christ.
And check this out. Knowingly or unwittingly, you say yes to that mission of love every time. And you say yes to strengthening me to that mission of love every time. You pray these very well-worn words. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.